Darkly Splendid Abodes, the official podcast of Toronto Thelema, exploring, if you will, practical philosophy, from science and the workings of the mind to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. Welcome to another deep dip, where we will be exploring a particular book more fully. This time we'll be dipping into an essay by Jack Parsons, famed rocket fuel innovator and co-founder of the Jet Propulsion Laboratories, as well as a fierce proponent of Thelemic principles. The essay we'll be looking at is entitled Freedom is a two-edged sword. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. Thanks for having me, Darren, to your wonderful home again. Yes, uh, people don't need to know that this is my home. Uh, They can think that this is a studio somewhere in the heart of the city or in an underground bunker somewhere. Your luxurious private studio. Yeah, or it's like a radio station that's secretly uh, broadcasting out of uh, some hole in the wall in another dimension or something like that. Uh, uh, From our secret lair. That's what the... um, Yeah. uh, What were they called? Uh, There's that, that vocal that podcast fry. I used to, <laughs> podcast I used to listen to, where the guy would say, uh, uh, "Live from our secret lair." Yeah, isn't uh, that coast to coast? Is uh, like Thale- Th- no, it wasn't Thalema coast to coast. Uh, it was um, another one adjacent to that. But uh, but then they would say the name of the university and the town that the university was in. <laughs> like they're called them. Broadcasting from our secret lair at, you know, Berkeley, California. As long as, they, yeah, until they kick us out for the, uh, <laughs> for the faith group to come in, yeah. So uh, today we're looking at some Jack Parsons writing. And freedom is a two-edged sword? That's yes, freedom is a two-edged sword. Now, I don't know if we really want to go to the extent of uh, explaining who Jack Parsons is, but uh, for anybody who's interested in finding out about Jack Parsons, it's a hell of a story. Uh, basically, everything happened to him. Uh, he invented solid-state rocket fuel or something along those I think lines. that's right, or at least stabilized. And uh, helped to found, he was one of the co-founders of the uh, JPL, um, mm-hmm. which uh, is the Jack Parsons Laboratory, I mean the Jet Propulsion Laboratories uh, that works with NASA. And uh, he also conjured Satan when he was a small child, and he uh, was conned by L. Ron Hubbard personally and cuckolded. And uh, he performed all kinds of crazy magical feats, including summoning Babylon in uh, human form, going by the human name of Marjorie Cameron, and uh, just on and on and on. And he had personal correspondence with Crowley, whom he called his father, and Crowley called him his son. Was and, he running uh, Thelema Lodge for a while? Yeah. As well, or is or am I... At the parsonage. <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Yeah. Okay. So that was Agape. Was it Agape Lodge? Was it Agape? Uh, that's why I asked. Yeah. Because uh, I he was initiated somewhere and then ended up uh, as body master somewhere and I don't I don't know where. Hmm. Yeah. I guess that would have been. I believe that was Agape Lodge. Um, okay. We may be wrong at any moment. Could happen. So, uh, but I I know that like for instance Agape Lodge originated in Vancouver with Charles Stanfeld Jones, and it ended up. I guess closing down at some point and then reopened or they opened Agape Lodge in California. So presumably it was Agape Lodge that he was, that Jack Parsons was running. But uh, there's always the possibility we don't know what we're talking well, about. No, I don't, don't apologize for your work. Hey, we're I mean, Canadians here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, this is what we do. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the point here is to demonstrate what can be done by, working with a piece of text. And so I'm not going to worry too much about the secondary source stuff. And, you know, if we try to give a brief history from memory, that's what it is. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, it's it's okay to, um, it's okay to be wrong about things. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm fine with that. Uh, well, let's start the way we always start. What did you think about this? Well, I, originally I suggested this text because I thought, hey, that'd be cool because I remembered reading this and I read, read a bunch of other stuff that I found online of Jack Parsons' writings, including uh, the channeled Book of Babylon, which he took to be the fourth chapter of the Book of the Law, um, which didn't survive intact in toto, but uh, um, I don't know how much of it was lost or anything like that. But either way, I've read a bunch of his stuff, and I found it really interesting. I remembered finding this particular essay um, very interesting and uh, inspirational in a lot of ways. And so that's what led me to suggest it. And also the fact that, uh, you know, this is a, a fiercely Thelemic person who uh, we can see what happens, for instance, when we have Crowley passing on these things to somebody else. Now, Crowley did denounce Jack Parsons at some point, but either way, it's a really good case study for seeing how Thelema goes forward to other people and that sort of thing as well. It's nice to see someone trying to deal with the consequences of what they've learned from their spiritual work, from their study of Crowley's writing, you know, trying to... Uh, make some effort to apply the doctrines in a practical way to look around at, at uh, politics and social uh, and social so forths <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, and do, an, do a, a, a thelemic based analysis. Uh, he never says the word thelema in here. Um, it seems like he's writing for a popular audience. There's, the first section, at least, he, he wants to be preaching to the converted because he wants people to get very excited about freedom and uh, what he calls uh, liberalism, uh, political philosophy based on the idea that, that individuals have merit and that their liberties should be protected. And, uh, and um, this was written at a time when he would have been under a lot of pressure from the government himself and a lot of... Uh, uh, they would have been looking into his private life uh, due to his involvement with uh, the 
OTO Lodge at the time, and due to all the rumors about his uh, his personal life and that sort of thing, because he wasn't a very sensitive field. He was working with the government during um, uh, World War II, from what I understand, helping to develop their missile technology and that sort of thing, as far as the rocket fuel was concerned and that sort of thing. The preface is 1950. The core text, I think, is 46. Is that right? That's correct. So ever since the World War II, he would have been under a lot of scrutiny right up until his death, I believe. I see. And so, uh, so that explains maybe some of the places where the the rigor goes out of it. He's having a lot of fun uh, with impassioned language and uh, Mm -hmm. poetry and sort of trying some calls to action and, and, uh, and then really uh, lots of nice venom in some places about uh, the oppressive enemy. Uh, And it's not, ideological you're saying it comes from a, a personal place as much as as much as from an ideological place mm-hmm. uh and so like there's places where there's three or four paragraphs of just vitriol and then then one sentence explaining how something actually works and it's like when he's figured out what he wants to say, he moves on to the next yeah. subject. Like you can tell it was written on a typewriter. <laughs> um, and I'm not saying it wasn't edited because like I said, some sections are, are lovely, but there's this sort of like, uh, like just frustration dump. And yeah, very then, and then the, the philosophy actually appends the frustration dumps mm-hmm. in some, some places uh, like where he's talking about um, how, how sex restriction becomes a weapon for the church. It's like, well, how does that weapon actually work? You know, what uh, creates uh, subservient, committed, church-going people? What? How, how do how do we go from uh, sex taboos to uh, legions of obedient followers? And and he deals with that in kind of one sentence, I think. Yeah, even late. down to one word, practically. Yeah. Like, he talks about the the sublimation of the sex instinct, and I think that pretty much sums up what he's trying to say, but he doesn't unpack it or anything like that. Yeah, I, I think there is one place where it's presented pretty clearly but it but yeah once he once he hits it he moves on it's like (laughs) all right okay that finally i got to the to the heart of the matter yeah what was your take on this how did you feel reading through this and what was your impression i the joke i told a friend is that this was going to be an easier recording than some of our other ones because thought like oh he seems to be indicating that the government of the day is not comported towards protecting individual liberties darren do you think that's still the case and then you would say yes i think that's still the case <laughs> and i would say well thank you very much for talking to me. <laughs> but it's actually after after chapter one where he's just sort of it's the longest chapter chapter one uh, you know something like there we go 37 paragraphs <laughs> devoted to analyzing the conditions at hand but then when he proposes his solutions, things do get a little bit more weedy. So I'm at a loss kind of about how to proceed, because if we just start at the beginning and go through stuff, many of the things that he's are part of his analysis of, you know, 1946 American politics and global policy, his, many of his complaints are applicable uh, to 
all times since then, including our own circumstances, and we might end up getting quite in the weeds in terms of like, oh, well, here he's talking about uh, partisanship in this way, and like, how do we see those partisan problems, uh, echoes of the same problems today? Uh, do we think the situation's improved or not? Uh, and that would be a fun conversation to have, but the, I think the, that what he's really worried about here, he says, you know, in this late hour, we should be worried about solutions. Is this stuff about sex morality, uh, the preservation of freedom, and then it's going to turn out that the solution is, will be found in, uh, in, in a feminist movement. And I think that's, I, I, I do think it's important to, to, to get there. So I don't know, I don't know whether to start at the beginning or whether to kind of... And that's a, totally valid. I think, I think a good way to think of this is, okay, if we do take it, uh, particularly because of the nature of this podcast and the subject that we're looking at, if we take it as, okay, if this is talking about modeling society after a Thelemic fashion, does it seem to be holding true to the principles of Thelema? And does it seem like it would work? Or, you know, that sort of thing mm -hmm. maybe might be a, a good approach to take with this. Um, maybe we could start with an overall, just sort of a, a, a game plan for the structure of the piece. Uh, so we have a, a, a brief preface, which mm -hmm. establishes the fact that freedom needs to be redefined because it's been obfuscated and also uh, hijacked by other groups. Uh, of course, at the time, the big thing was um, fascism versus communism being the two uh, major threats to American freedom and that sort of thing. Uh, and... So he's talking about these uh, socialist mentalities that use the term freedom to pretty much push their totalitarianist perspectives that are kind of hidden behind their their agendas and that sort of thing. So the part, I think part of the point is that uh, not just that communism and fascism are the two major threats to the American way of life, but that if you don't wholeheartedly support the partisan leftist movement, for example, then uh, other leftists are going to call you a fascist. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you don't wholeheartedly support, you know, say something like, say, the war effort or, you know, whatever's going on uh, on an establishment level, then establishment people are going to call you a communist. We're seeing this sort of radical partisan identification and that that these two forces are like the major forces in uh, across the social sphere never mind and that that liberalism is actually being sublimated and that the that the totalitarian force, forces are are impersonating uh, lib, uh liberalist forces but that just just like uh but that parsons is going to say that you know uh most people who are promoting liberal philosophies are actually either secret communists or secret <laughs> totalitarians. So he's committing the same crime he's accusing people of, I think, of, <laughs> of, uh, of, of labeling people as being radical partisans for 
either mm -hmm. side, even within the even within the United States. There will be a lot of uh, potential contradictions and whatnot coming up, but yeah, that's his thesis here: is that well, freedom needs to be redefined, and then we need to uh, figure out w what freedom is and how to create that and maintain it going forward. So that's where our preface leaves off. So chapter one starts with defining freedom. And freedom is a two-edged sword. There could be some work done on this. It's like if we take freedom as a fundamental principle, then what would be our duties? And Crowley has a whole paper on duty that he's trying to pull the duty out of the consequences of a life lived in a line with free will. Parsons sort of pretty superficially just says that the, the, that the principal duty is to protect the freedom of other people. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want freedom for yourself, if you're comported towards freedom, then you have to be consistent and avoid charges of hypocrisy and, you know, slippery slope style threats uh, by just defending freedom on all fronts. Uh, and that's his, that's the two edges of the sword that he perceives. Yeah, he says the, uh, of which one edge is liberty and the other responsibility. So that's to your point there. Um, the responsibility being um, how you maintain that freedom. So it's not simply something that you take passively. It's a very active thing. And it's a, it, it does require a lot of responsibility in maintaining it. And he also emphasizes the fact that he doesn't for a minute uh, think that uh, freedom is for really for everyone in its true form. He thinks that it's really going to be um, held by the few rather than the many, uh, because most people will just not be capable of freedom and for various reasons. That I took to be the point of the preface was kind of an apology for his naivete. I was never so naive as to believe that freedom in any full sense is possible for more than a few. But I have believed and still do hold that these few, by self-sacrifice, wisdom, courage, and continuous effort, can achieve and maintain a free world. That labor is heroic, but it can be done by example and education. Such was the faith that built America, a faith that America has surrendered. I call upon America to renew this faith before she perishes. His, his solution here, at least in the, in the article proper, sometimes seems like it's going to be... Uh, a solution that really uh, repairs society on behalf of large numbers of of people. That the consequences of uh, the freedom forged by the ancestors of uh, these priestess warrior women who are the champions of uh, illogical thought <laughs> and uh, and, and who only admit men who are up to their rigorous standards that between that then they'll they'll breed a generation of people who are sexually liberated and therefore able to build a society that's uh, that's stable enough uh, for all, all people to enjoy some uh, margin of, of freedom greater than what he sees as being the right, right now the the in Parsons time the the greatest people are functioning as a, as oppressors they don't have the uh, degree of uh, sexual <laughs> sexual mm -hmm. enlightenment in order to understand uh, that irrationalism is necessary and uh, that that means a diversity of uh, of values and that that 
freedoms need to be protective. And yeah, just to uh, point out the, when you say illogical in reference to these warrior women of the past and that sort of thing, it's like not as a flippant way of saying that. It's as uh, the way that he's describing it, which is um, in contrast to the intellectualism that the patriarchal era of the Aeon of Osiris exemplified, the intellectualism being what ended up being very oppressive in the in the result of that. It's interesting because that reminds me of in the Confessions where Crowley talks about uh, having done some horoscopes, uh, cast some charts for some various murderers. And uh, I guess he would have probably used the term serial killer if it had been coined by that point, but it hadn't. Um, but either way, he did some charts for some various murderers and discovered that, surprisingly, it wasn't any of the malicious, malevolent planets that seemed to be at fault. It was actually the cold intellectualism of Mercury, which makes a hell of a lot of sense, actually, because that's a very sociopathic potential right there. And uh, reminds me very much of along the lines of what you're capable of when you intellectualize things. So the enemy here are going to be the positivists. Mm-hmm. And positivism is a branch of philosophy that deals with what can be known. It's reactionary against Kant and the continental idealist movements that posit this uh, idea that, you know, we have these sense perceptions uh, and we can do a good amount of science with them, but we can't necessarily trust them because we can only evaluate our sense perceptions by other sense perceptions. And it's like appointing a bureau to supervise the police, but only hiring ex-police. <laughs> you know, they're going to be uh, motivated to protect each other. Our senses cannot penetrate beyond our senses. Therefore, we have to postulate this other world where, like, you know, our sense perceptions might be true. That's one possibility, is that we can understand everything. But because we don't know that we can understand everything, uh, then what we're dealing with is a world of ideas and ideals, and um, the the real world is, is opaque to us, and then we start doing work with the difference between the phenomenal world and the nominal world, the the world of things in themselves versus the world of ideals. And the positivists think that that's a faffy waste of time and that people are, uh, you know, sort of uh, jerking off too much around <laughs> this, uh, this idea of fantasy and that at best this is a useless activity because the world about which you're postulating is a world that we can't perceive, but actually probably is an error so that the, you know, we wouldn't have the senses we have if they didn't tell us meaningful things about the world. Therefore, we do know meaningful things about the world and that what we should focus on is uh, physical objects, our understanding of them, the ideas that that derive from our observations, um, and that, that science really is the beginning and the ending of everything that people can can know. There's a passage in here where Parsons does talk about uh, what science can teach us and how we know things through science by uh, using Crowley's language of convenience. Um, But these positivists that think we can know things meaningfully are are the enemy in Parsons' paper because uh, he thinks that they, um, they create a 
they create totalitarianism by saying, oh, we can know things, therefore, you know, there's there can be a class of people that know things, and those people should make decisions on behalf of everything, <laughs> everyone else, and that, uh, you know, wrong-headed ideas should be censored or so and so forth. He's and, very much against the idea of dogmas and creeds, um, which, ironically, it's like it, it feels like he's still searching for a dogma or a creed that we can have for freedom, but you know, without, uh, somehow without actually having a dogma or a creed. Well, the, so the, this is what you're talking about in terms of like mixing the planes, right? Mm. Is, uh, because we can't know things on one level, all ideas have to be open for discussion, but because we can't know things on another level, we have to absolutely enshrine the right of all people <laughs> uh, uh, to have things open for discussion. So, uh, yeah, he, so this, he delineates this, this, uh, this freedom of uh, of of expression uh, becomes a a a solid, defined, concrete, immovable guiding principle mm -hmm. by virtue of the fact that. There are no solid, concrete, immovable <laughs> guiding principles. It's actually, it's actually quite a clever move, and, mm -hmm. and one that I think works. Yeah, and it's one that I very much agree with for sure. Um, it's uh, he gives a, a list of what seem like essentially rewordings of Liberaz, mm -hmm. uh, and with a, a few additions as well. So uh, I think uh, everything from uh, Liberaz is represented, if I remember correctly. Possibly there might be some slight changes or whatever, but there's uh, three additions for sure. There's one of them is emphasis on the right to a private life, mm -hmm. which makes total sense when his, he's under such scrutiny at the time and everything like that uh, through those years. The right to work as one chooses at a commensurate wage. Yeah, so here we already have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because he's saying that these uh, principles are man's inalienable rights and that they should transcend interpretation. They should be stated clearly enough that no one should ever have to quibble about what that means. Mm -hmm. uh, so who's paying me my living wage? Exactly. And how do you define a commensurate wage and how do you, you know, require that to be paid and how do you, you know, how does that affect the people who have to pay the wages and, you know, how yeah. they're able to... Is it that, uh, is it that I'm, I'm owed a job uh, <laughs> doing exactly the kind of work that I want to do or is it that if I can't find a job doing exactly the kind of work that I want to do, uh, I should uh, I, I should become an entrepreneur, and if I become an entrepreneur, does the state then give me a little stipend? Uh, or uh, <laughs> it's hard to conceptualize how this is going to be taken customers. care of without socialism or something like it. You know, like yeah. it. It seems like he's trying to argue for one thing and then not realizing that he's also invoking another thing simultaneously. I think all that's happening is that um, we're saying that he hasn't been rigorous enough in his construction. Mm -hmm. If the point is that these uh, that that the rights ensured by liberalism uh, should be unimpeachable and beyond interpretation, then what that means is they need to be carefully considered what is enshrined as a right, 
rights need to be things that are unimpeachable and beyond interpretation, and then they need to be carefully formulated and stated. And he's just been a bit lazy here. I think that's all that's happening. Yeah. And I, I think one of the important things that people tend to forget in our context, talking about Thelema and whatnot, a good example is Liberaz with the uh, rights of man, where these are natural rights. And there's a distinction between natural rights and other types of rights like regional rights that you would have when it comes to legal processes. I would call them states' rights, rights improved by the state. And traditionally, natural rights are those given to us by God, and we find those by, you know, maybe looking at scripture or through special revelation or something. But what Crowley does with uh, Lieber Oz that I think is quite brilliant, and he might not be the first person to do this, but I think it's cool, is he um, gives us the five rights that we are able to claim for ourselves with self-discipline and courage, irrespective of what state we live in. You know, states can make laws against speech, but they can't physically stop us from speaking without committing violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or they can uh, make laws about food and property, but they can't physically stop us from eating things without violence. So if you just have a little bit of courage, you can claim your Oz rights irrespective of what's going on socially. And that's what makes them natural rights, is that they're guaranteed by the courage of the individual, not by anything that's happening socially. Mm -hmm. I think there's a nasty habit that, and this is probably why freedom is more likely to be maintained by, uh, well, I mean, it's one aspect of why, why freedom would be maintained by a few people rather than everyone, uh, because... Well, I mean, you have to be clear on how these things actually work and how how to actually enforce them in normal life. Like a very common thing as far as rights go is like as an example, I remember once having a friend who was like, uh, this is when I was a kid. We were riding bikes and that sort of thing. I think we were teenagers or whatever. And uh, he, he I, I was suggesting something along the lines of not whizzing down uh, the streets, crossing streets so quickly and that sort of thing. And his argument was if he gets hit by a car, he'll sue. And Mm -hmm. that's the kind of like, uh, you know, that's maybe another example of mixing the planes where it's like, uh, (laughs) okay, that's not, uh, that's kind of, uh, but that's a a passive form of using these kinds of ideas of rights and and laws and things like that. Like you were, you were owed something and it's other people's job to see that you get it or something like that. I have the courage to whiz down the street out of control and put myself in all sorts of danger. Therefore, I have the right to whiz down the street uh, Mm -hmm. recklessly and put myself in all sorts of danger. And if I come up with against in a conflict with another human being, I have the courage to, you know, defend myself. Uh, um, But uh, um, I feel like that's where part of the responsibility end of things that side of the sword comes in yeah. as well because it's you're taking responsibility for yourself you're not you know then um in the right necessarily you've chosen you've taken responsibility for your own actions at that point i'm just trying to figure out where it goes wrong i think it's the idea that the state should be part of the solution if he gets hurt that like that like the consequences of his actions are like that he may cause trauma to another person who then feels bad about 
crashing his car into a bicycle, uh, that he may be injured and go to the hospital, that he may die. You know, if it was if it was if somebody hits me with their car, we can take it to a fist fight. Then like or some <laughs> uh, or some solution that he had full control over. Like if like but uh, but to then say the state needs to protect his natural right to drive recklessly and <laughs> injure other people. Uh, I think that's where he's yeah. Uh, that that's that's where it goes wrong is that the that the the state rights, you know, he may have the natural right to play as he will, and the state has some uh, responsibility for defending that. But but in the case where he's injuring another person by causing this trauma of a traffic accident, uh, the state should mediate that. It doesn't it doesn't side with him. Mm-hmm. Necessarily, it, it, Parsons here says uh, individual rights end where another. one man where one man's rights ends where another man's begins, or mm-hmm. something like that, uh, which is a super slippery way of putting it, and requires uh, the kind of analysis that we're not supposed to yeah. to do. <laughs> this is the thing, yeah. It's like it's it's unfortunately kind of impossible to just leave it at that and then not have to look any closer in different circumstances. And that's one of the problems when you talk about rights and laws and things like that. Theoretically, it's when you actually have them operating in real life that you run into the problems that you have to uh, have more complications arise and that sort of thing. Because how do you, you know, establish who's actually at fault and all that sort of thing? And it gets you down those those corridors. Just before we uh, lose track of it, there was a third of those rights that he added to the uh, Oz rights, so to speak, um, which was to have a decent environment and upbringing until adulthood. And that, again, is one of those things that's like, okay, how do you, uh, how do you guarantee that? He'll equivocate on that later. He'll mm-hmm. say that, you know, the state can't promise everyone security or something like that, but they can at least uh, protect people from, uh, from abuse. Mm-hmm. And the way you protect people from abuse is by um, by enshrining a right to divorce or something like that. You don't obli- oblige people to stay in abusive marriages. Mm-hmm. You know, it's traumatic for a child to go through a parental separation, but it's even more traumatic for a child to have parents that don't like each other. And so if you let parents decide when to couple and when to decouple, um, then you're coming a long way towards supporting the flourishing of children. And I think that's there's a, something to be said for that because it is kind of working towards the, the seed of the cause rather than just dealing with the symptoms and dealing with things in a, not just the symptoms, but also in you know forcing these, uh, these cultural mores that can be extremely, extremely damaging. I think in the last couple of episodes, we opened by saying, you know, this is a difficult text. This particular points of doctrine are clear, and I can, like, pull out paragraph here and paragraph there and talk a lot about what it means, but I don't really follow the beginning to end structure. And I think this is a place where it's not that difficult to know (laughs) exactly what's being argued. So if we're going to take a crack at sort of summarizing it before we get into the text. We did uh, get a little offhanded. (laughs) Let's, uh, let's, so we've, we've started by talking about the, um, the material conditions and how, 
you know, governments are not comported towards freedom. That's basically the preface in chapter one. Mm -hmm. uh, in chapter two, we sort of try to give a bit of a history of that and say that, you know, there was a, a, a long period of time where slavery was assumed. Um, and this is because of Christian rule and the suppression of sex morality. Um, or sorry, the the moralization of sex and the suppression of the sex instinct um, creates people who are um, subservient. And the way this works is that sex is such a fundamental instinct that if you sort of cut it off at the root, people become anxious about themselves. They uh, they they think of themselves as 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 evil people because they have these instincts that are inappropriate, and then they want to defer to a higher authority um, uh, that will teach them good moral values. So people willfully sacrifice freedom if you can only undermine them on some fundamental level, and the best weapon for this is is to attack their sex morality or attack their sex instinct with an imposition of morality. Um, and then uh, around 200 years ago, I think it's actually, uh, he, it would be 150 years for him, but he says 200 years ago, um, liberalism was invented, which was the principle that all uh, individuals should have rights enshrined by the state. Uh, he's talking about the the Constitution of the United States, I think. And I guess uh, Voltaire was a, you know, a real starting point for that kind of line of thought okay that, that helps well. me because yeah. uh um because the there's 150 years between mm -hmm. him and the the constitution but maybe voltaire voltaire pushes it back a little bit um you could even push it back to the magna carta mm -hmm. and that would be 1200 ish uh just saying that uh you know kings should try to make just laws and try to follow the laws that they make <laughs> so that monarchs are also bound by uh, the state and not above the law. So, um, But we still have, even though individuals supposedly have liberty, um, we still have uh, this problem of sort of Christianity in another form with the lingering anxiety and self-editing and uh, around the humiliation of sex. So therefore, uh, it's up to women who've been systematically oppressed through all, all of history that, that the liberation of, of women uh, needs to include um, something about the uh, restoring their status as, as priestesses of mystery and therefore sex, because sex for Parsons is the ultimate mystery. And uh, and then, as as I said earlier, though that that by uh, that this conflict between between men and women, this productive conflict, will breed a generation absolved of sex anxiety and therefore comported toward freedom. So I think that's the shape of the piece generally. Yeah, which is neat too because you can look at the sexual revolution with the '60s and everything like that, and we can actually see a couple of generations in there uh, and how things have you know evolved since then which is kind of nice rather than you know somebody positing something right today and how it started to happen and then got hamstrung because of hiv global mm -hmm. a global pandemic that is ongoing 
and uh, and we we and the you know the Puritans all said, "See, we told you, God hates <laughs> porno," and and uh, and uh, now we're back in a a world I think that's largely allergic to um, eros. <laughs> Well, that's actually the, you know, it's, it's, I mean, we have that pendulum swing back and forth where it seems like it's constantly going, you know, and it, it doesn't go all the way. It kind of goes in a new direction. Like the mean of that is moving in, in some particular direction, which does seem to be more open and more self-aware and more present with these things like our, like our sex instinct and that sort of thing. Um... So I think there's a lot more liberation in that sense today, certainly, than there was in Parsons' time. It's a different kind of uh, it's a different kind of thing, though. I think people are uh, much, much more free to uh, declare things about themselves with uh, regard to sexual identity and then you know we have uh, all this porno porno everywhere so people can uh explore um on their own terms and nobody's afraid to uh sort of admit that they're having premarital sex or uh, yeah can you imagine being in that kind of an environment where it was like everybody denied it yeah (laughs) not only were ashamed but flat out denied but there's there's something about eros which is now, like anxious about objectification, maybe that like that to declare an erotic desire is somehow to dehumanize the object of that desire or something, which is uh, uh, something that's happening now that maybe wasn't happening then. There's a way in which uh, which I think people are people are just as afraid of their sex instincts because. I'm having a hard time parsing this, but there's a way in, uh, and I can't tell whether it's because I don't fully understand it or whether it's because I'm afraid to say something controversial, but there's, <laughs> there's, there's a way in which there's a, there's, there's a loss of commitment to your own desires. I think because partly because of like porno and we're used to being able to, um, have fantasies as islands without being in converse in dialogue with another person mm-hmm. that uh, that putting ourselves in dialogue with another person is there's a vulnerability in that that we're not used to um that we're not used to having to to navigate because fantasies are private and actual sex is social mm-hmm. um and so we're afraid not only of being seen as sexual beings but also afraid of like degrading and insulting others by clearly expressing our desires or something like that. And that's, I mean, that's kind of what I'm thinking of in terms of like being able to see these generations since uh, Parsons where uh, this has been unfolding and evolving because it's not been a straight, you know, revolution Mm -hmm. that's opened up. It's a revolution followed by repression, followed by revolution, followed by, it's like a, it's a pattern. It's a ripple effect. And um, the image that's coming to mind is like galaxies colliding Mm-hmm. where they start throwing things off and going kind of like all over the place and then they slowly kind of merge. So it's a process. 
that's going probably over several, like, who knows how many generations it'll take. But, uh, like I say, there's a kind of mean in there that you can probably detect by following things out. Um, and certainly it's still, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, we're still early on because it's been less than 100 years since Parsons' time. So, uh, so that's something we'll see continually unfolding. I also think Parsons is missing the way in which uh, feminism would have to become a big tent popular movement in order to make the kind of progress he wants it to make. Um, if he's relying on the idea of, uh, you know, very powerful women taking up relationships with very powerful men and producing very powerful offspring, if that's going to be the drive of culture, you know, whenever a man starts to flex their feminist credential as hard as Parsons is trying to flex his <laughs> here, they become very interested in dictating to women how they I, should behave right, and yeah. what their goal should be. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange irony in the, the prescriptive power of the, the male feminist. But anyway, uh, if, if he's missing what Crowley said in uh, the Lieber... 150 that we just finished reading about how ordinary men mate with null women and uh, only great and great men mate with beasts surely this is uh, true of women too and if uh, if 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 women become a, a big tent movement sorry if feminine feminism becomes a big tent movement and uh, admits lots and lots of ordinary women then those ordinary women will mate, mate with null men and produce a generation of people who are just like you know, the um the the piece that that i think this is why he's apologizing in the preface uh that uh, that he's saying oh some of this stuff seemed a bit naive maybe uh and that what i you know what i really mean is that a small number of people have to do it on behalf of a large number of people mm -hmm. uh that it there has to be a um it's a sort of aristocracy of freedom has to be an arist aristocratic movement comported towards freedom uh pushing culture forward on behalf of everyone else it can't happen in in terms of a of just a whole generation of sexually liberated freedom loving people who then you know, over the course of a hundred years or something, fix it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Another important piece of this is Jack Parsons' sort of idiosyncratic conception of the the aeonic structure in in Thelema. Mm -hmm. um, and I say Parsons' thinking on this is idiosyncratic, but I think most people's thinking on this is idiosyncratic. This is something about which there's a lot of disagreement. Uh, even the preface to the Book of the Law, which talks about it in, I guess, as close to a fundamentalist way as we're going to get to in Thelema with the, you know, the periods of 2100 years or something like that, each ruled by a different god uh, in alignment roughly with the procession of the equinoxes. The procession of the equinoxes is this thing where for 2100 years at dawn uh, on the spring equinox, you'll see Pisces. And Pis and then after 2100 years, there's be this subtle rotation of the earth where now at dawn on the morning of the spring equinox, uh, you'll see Aquarius. You won't so much see it as be blinded by the sun, but yeah. Right, but that'll be, <laughs> the sun will be in the sign of, Aquar of, mm -hmm. of Aquarius during a time where it was in the sign of Pisces. And so there's this procession of the equinoxes, which is, you know, 2100 years uh, in each sign. 
Which is where the dawning of the age of Aquarius comes yeah, from. Yeah, that, that cute song. That, yeah. uh, and uh, which is where Crowley's idea of uh, a new aeon maybe comes from, or uh, that we're sort of moving slowly into the age of Aquarius now. Yeah, through J.G. Frazier. And, uh, Did I have that right? You're talking about the... The uh, Golden Bow. The Golden Bow? Yeah. Uh, is it in there? Someone told me it was in there, but the chunks of that book that I read, I couldn't find it. It was only about uh, fertility cults and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you but you think it's in the Fraser? That's what I've always associated with. Maybe it's because I've always read in Crowley-related material that it's in the Fraser. Okay. And now that you're mentioning it, it's like I, I, it was a long time ago that I read that, and I don't have a solid, I can't conjecture either way, to be honest. Um, well, the, there's a lot of the Fraser. It's an encyclopedia that's always abridged yeah. into. Yeah, so we're always text. reading the abridged version and, unless yeah. we're really boring people, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe there's a preface where it talks about it. But so any, anyway, so there's this uh, conception that there was an age of ISIS followed by, uh, which is for Crowley was uh, um, about uh, Female characterized worship. by matriarchy, an age of Osiris characterized by patriarchy. And now we're moving into an age of Osiris, or sorry, of uh, Horus, which will be, you know, about uh, maybe individualism or something. It's the something crown and the, conquering child. So right. uh, Crowley actually has a really interesting way of looking at that that I just recently saw in his, uh, um, oh, curses. You know what? I'm going to look that up because it's too on point. Uh, I think I just made a post about that on Toronto Thelema, so... Yeah, it's the present uh, period being transmission from the dying god Osiris to the conquering child Horus in Tifereth on the Tree of Life. Yeah, so to turn this suffering self-conscious man in being Osiris, the, the Aeon of Osiris, to turn this suffering and self-conscious man into the innocent child, hoc opus, hic liber, which just means this work, this book. So it's pretty much, uh, that that seemed pretty key, like the suffering and self-conscious man, turning that into the innocent child, which goes very, it really ties in with Crowley's conception of uh, the intellect and the rational mind being, um, it's something that you really want to refine and develop, but then so that you can get beyond it. The... Um Nietzsche has this idea, uh, and for me, this is a formulation of the um, procession of the aeons as well. This idea that once all across Europe were these uh, great blonde beasts of men riding on horseback and just taking whatever they wanted, wherever they wanted, uh, that there was a a profound um, uh, liberty in sort of being a member of a nomadic tribe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... Uh, over time, this developed into a relationship where some of the leaders of some of these tribes became warlords, and they had uh, large numbers of, of slaves. And uh, then for Nietzsche, as well as I think for other German continental philosophers, it's the condition of slavery that creates self-consciousness, that creates a theory of mind, that creates um, that, that creates the compulsion to make art and stuff like that because uh warlords just do things whereas um people who are slaves 
have to reflect upon their circumstances and make plans and 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 if if they want to self-actualize in any way other than just being our fingers of the state uh, they have to reflect on their conditions and so you become people by being the way you put it self you become self-conscious by suffering um then uh around the time of christ there's a revolution where not around the time of christ but because of christ there's a revolution where um uh, the idea of of having lots of good things becomes evil in comparison to the idea of not having lots of good things so being in a bad condition is good against the evil of being in a good condition. So a trans transvaluation of values. Yeah, and so the 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 thing flips into a two thousand a two thousand year period, roughly, of um, negating life. High, pity being the highest moral value. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this uh, this for Nietzsche, this is part of sort of everybody becoming interesting because there's this sort of churn of uh, of of all of humanity sort of falling into this condition of slavery to all other <laughs> portions of humanity. Parsons here says that the, uh, the, he doesn't say dictator, the tyrant is the, is, is in the, the most pitiable of all conditions because he's a slave to the entire state rather than just being a slave to the tyrant. Um, but there's this, and, um, and what Nietzsche thinks now is that, that God is dead. We have this opportunity to, uh, to integrate all the stuff we've learned from all these other periods of history and become something new, uh, which he doesn't clearly define, but this is part of, uh, mm -hmm. the chaotic transition. And part and parcel with that, with, I, I just can't let it go by without mentioning the Nietzsche's way of putting it with, uh, as you started there with the idea of these, uh, the powerful kind of taking things by their strength. Um, those who are disempowered end up using intellectualism as, and cunning, as you might put it. Sure. And yeah. uh, that, that being, uh, to him, he seems to frown upon that quite a bit. But then again, it's kind of like, well, strength is strength and the will to power in the end. So it's, uh, it's just another means to achieve that. But it is something worth keeping in mind just in terms of the Nietzschean structure of things. The idea that we as intellectuals sitting here right now are conniving little bastards who just try to get <laughs> things uh, the way that we can because we don't have the strength to do it outright. Um, but the answer is not a return to, um, pre-Christian morality. The answer is a discovery of, of something new that integrates, uh, the, the necessary material that we've developed over the, the, mm -hmm. the course of a new of integration. And this is, a, I think this is the problem that we run into is that there's tends to be a, an idolization of the matriarchal society that came theoretically before the Osirian. Um, which is not really, it, it's like one of those golden age mentalities of looking back at the good old days as if mm. those were the good old days or something like that. And but, there was, but how does uh, Jack Parsons talk about it? It seems as though that's how he's talking about it. Like he's talking about the matriarchal age when it was more, when there was equality. Yes. So he's following Nietzsche here in a way, and not saying that there was a there was a matriarchy, but there was some time when men and women were equal and supporting each other, and that women were priestesses and priestesses and men were I can't remember what he says something else, and that he really is talking about 
a return to that time, restoring the function of woman as priestess. So there's the the rational man and the anti-rational woman, or the the scientific man and the emotional woman, restoring a, a kind of balance uh, for society. He also follows Nietzsche in blaming uh, Jesus, although I think in in fact we have uh, these Osirian movements. Uh, all over the world, not just in places mm-hmm. that are early adopters of Christianity, um, and that the condition of woman is as bad in Sparta and Athens, perhaps worse than it is any anywhere across uh, medieval Europe. And so uh, these the idea of a time when men and women were equal maybe goes deeper back into the the era that that Nietzsche's talking about in terms of nomadic life or something like this. I think uh, there are places in the, you know, different places in the world will have different attitudes toward gender parity and different... Yeah, I mean, let's be honest, this is a tidy, convenient uh, way to uh, simplify things and categorize things. But uh, frankly, whether or not it actually holds up on scrutiny when you're looking at the actual history of the world and that sort of thing is questionable. Think about um, what we call history, uh, and I, I think the training around this is slightly different now, but I was taught that history is a study of literature, mm-hmm. um, and that if people don't have literature, then they can still have sophisticated societies and sophisticated sociologies and uh, be interesting, but they don't have a history. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, uh, people don't like to hear this now, but one of the things that used to be said is that Africa has no history um, because there were magnificent cultures in many places in Africa that were, uh, at least we think, pre-literate, that we don't have. And even if they did have, uh, even if they did have a system of writing, we, none of that comes down to us so that none of the history survives. And so you could imagine uh, prehistorical people living now you know, who knows, they're un- uncontacted tribes in the Amazon or whatever. There may be prehistoric people all the way up to the present date, as well as, you know, uh, post-historical people who are unable to read or unwilling to read, uh, which you see everywhere, especially if you uh, work with the public. Um, prehistory, history, and what you might want to call post-history, all these things, these these three periods exist simultaneously, even though they are uh, periods. And mm-hmm. so, um, uh, and and this, the same is true of the aeons, even though formally we want to say that the aeon of Osiris is 2,000 years. Crowley thought that he started the process of, of pushing the new aeon something like 500 years BC when he was on Kafnakansu mm-hmm. and, and did, has magical memory of doing things that, that inspired the new process. I just wanted to get that on the table because it's not explicit in here, although he mentions the Aeon of Isis. This is for, I think, people who think of themselves as liberals and comported towards freedom, and he wants to talk about the responsibilities of liberals towards liberalism, not of Thelemites toward free will or or Mm -hmm. true will or something. Um, So I I just wanted to put that Thelemic conception of the uh, procession of the equinoxes, the polemic perception of the aeonic movement on the table, um, because it's it's fundamental to how he's thinking about it here. This idea of um, of, uh, of liberalism being founded, you know, 200 years ago mm-hmm. from when he's writing. 
250 years for us, that would have been for him the birth, the beginning of the birth pains of the new aeon, mm-hmm. and a and a new aeon that would be, um, that would that that in his conception will ultimately come to be crowned by the reestablishment of the the female priesthood. Uh, and it sounds like very much a reintegration, so not mm-hmm. just uh, reestablishing the female priesthood. As though going back to a, mon- a matriarchy, but uh, an yeah. integration where but we are working together. But he thinks the matriarchy never really existed. He's, he's, he thinks that the Aeon of Isis was an Aeon of Equality and that he's looking That's forward true. to an Aeon of Equality. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's going to be different just by virtue of the fact that time has passed and things have changed. But I think, uh, if, and, and so he may account for that, but I think he's... Uh, he, at least for the sake of the rhetoric in this text, he's text. He's looking for a restoration of old, of old systems and values. And it's interesting because there's a, throughout the text, it does seem like there's a certain level of him trying to find expression for all the things he's excited about with the Lima. You know, like all the, uh, I mean, there's Libraz, there's there's uh, the idea of the uh, procession of the equinoxes, there's um, uh, all these things that he's trying. And the liberation of uh, women seems to be a real touchstone for him, personally. Um, but uh, just generally speaking, it seems like throughout the text, it's uh, um, it's as if as if he's trying to find expression for all these things that he's excited about and transmit them to a wider audience to some extent. And uh, the unfortunate thing I think for that for those purposes are that he does wax poetical quite a bit, especially in chapters three and four, I think. It, it ends up being the point to the point where it's kind of like you know oh sure he's he's keeping it less technical in terms of thelemic terminology and stuff like that but it doesn't matter beyond a certain point because I'm sure most people would still find it a little bit they'd get lost in the weeds of a lot of his um, colorful visualizations and whatnot. Let's try to. St- start getting into some of this text. I'm just looking through chapter one to see if I can find things we've missed in our vampy uh, summarization here. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking here at um, paragraph uh, five of chapter one. Since all tyrannies are based on dogma and since all dogmas are based on lies, it behooves us to look beyond them for truth and freedom will both be far away. Uh, and then down here a little bit, the witches and devils of the Middle of Ages were real by our own standards. Reputable and responsible persons believed them. So this is, uh, this is the standard. Reputable and responsible persons believed in them. They were seen, their effects observed, they accounted for a large body of otherwise inexplicable phenomenon, their existence was accepted without question by the majority of men, great and humble, and from this majority, there was not and is still not any appeal. So this is a science person <laughs> who spent his a career in science telling us what the um, canon of truth is in science. And I, I, that's why I think it's worth reading. Uh, so the standard of truth, reputable and responsible persons believe. And I think what he's saying there is that uh, our conception of reality 
does change. And that's all we have is our conception of reality. That's right. So that's where he's going to get to. But the these are there are about three or four standards of truth in here. Reputable and responsible persons believe. Effects are seen and observed. Effects account for a large body of otherwise inexplicable phenomenon. Existence acceptable by the majority of men. Uh, and yeah, so I think that's that's just rehashing the first thing. So I think that's the four. Um, yeah, there's actually there because uh, he's he specifically talks about uh, from these negatives when he's talking about the uh, things that we can't know mm-hmm. um, and basically trying to itemize some of the problems of philosophy in terms of like our inability to see beyond our senses and what what our minds are capable of getting from our senses and that sort of thing as you were talking about earlier uh, from these negatives we can deduce positive principles we have whatever the universe is we are either all or part of it by virtue of our consciousness but we do not know which so we don't know if the universe is entirely constructed of our own mind or if we are simply a part an individual part of that in overall universe we can't tell we don't yeah so we don't know what the universe is but we know that it exists because we have perceptions and we know that we're at least part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may be the whole universe, but we, we know that we're at least part of the universe. And then we have no philosophy, scientific theory, religion, or system of thought can be absolute and infallible. They are relative only. One man's opinion is just as good as another's. I think he goes too far in that last sentence. Yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, but it is, but that the this is the consequence of... Um, uh, of, of what he's saying earlier the, because of these standards of truth that, that science employs you know does it explain is it ex, does it explain things can we see it you know these sorts of things uh, well witchcraft explains lots of phenomena otherwise inexplicable and we see witches when we're you know putting them on trial uh, so this shows that uh, that scientific theories can be flexible because in one age, witches seemed like a scientific fact. In our age, they seem like goofy fairy mm-hmm. tales. And he even uh, projects that into the future, where another time in the future, we may see it in a totally different light again. Yeah, so the positivists that think the evidence of our senses, uh, you know, if, if, if the evidence of our senses is, is our standard of truth, like it literally can't be our standard of truth, because the standard of truth in, includes these layers of uh, of of, in, of epistemological interpretation, and uh, and and we develop. So. Mm-hmm. Then we have for the third one: there is no absolute justification for emphasizing one individual theory or way of life over another. There may be provisional justifications. You know, <laughs> this is not anti-science. He's a science person. There is no absolute justification. Absolute justification. And uh, yeah, there again, it's like it's he knows what he means. It may gloss over it so quickly that it's uh, it may come off the wrong way from a cursory Mm -hmm. reading and that sort of thing. Then the fourth one is every man has the right to his own opinion and his own way of life. There is no system of human thought which can successfully refute this thesis. I'm not sure about that statement either. There is no system of human thought which can successfully refute this thesis. Seems well, he's like... going to say successfully, right? Yeah. You, you know, he's going to acknowledge that refutes exist. He's just not personally finding them successful. <laughs> I've written down uh, why we need freedom, and I found one, two, three, four, uh, five. 
uh, and this is this is the first one I found. So truth is beyond understanding. Therefore, all points of view must be freely expressed. Uh, if we be if we believe that uh, truth is a good thing and that we need to work towards truth, uh, we can't censor people no matter how reprehensible their ideas seem to be, um, because it's the openness of conversation that gets us towards uh, truth. So. And, and truth might be way outside of the Overton window. You know, we have a history of people who were uh, put under house arrest for saying that the sun was the center of the solar system. Even at a time when that idea wasn't that controversial, Copernicus and Galileo were not the first people to think that. <laughs> um, but so the, the, the Overton window is not a good is not a good way of defining what ideas should be censored and what ideas shouldn't be censored. In fact, uh, in order to, to speak at all, we need free we need the freedom to be wrong about things. Yeah, and this is uh, where we get into uh, the need for a doctrine and a credo as much as he uh, doesn't want to suggest that that's needed. He wants to say we need to avoid that. Uh, we first and foremost need to agree on if that is what we want. Like, I think that we as Thelemites tend to want freedom. That kind of goes hand in hand with it. But if you're looking at society as a whole, this kind of freedom that we're talking about, like anti-censorship, that uh, may be against some people's personal preference because they might be thinking that if we can narrow down on what's allowed and what's not allowed and what's uh, what kind of language we use, what kind of art we have, what kind of thought we're allowed to uh, explore and that sort of thing, then uh, if we narrow down on those things, then they there's clearly people who believe that that ends up creating a greater harmony because there's you're controlling large numbers of people who believe that and mm -hmm. Parsons is going to talk about them in the all the way through the first chapter of this paper and 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 into uh, uh, the third chapter as well mm -hmm. uh, I marked out this section from the author's preface uh, we seem to be living in a nation that simply does not know what we are told we have the thing we are told we have is is freedom we do not know what freedom is we do not know what we are told we have and that we tell each other we have we don't we keep telling each other we have freedom but we don't know what it means either so not only are we told we have freedom and we don't understand it we then start repeating this thing about how we have freedom and we don't understand it that's pretty it, on the nose indeed it is far more than that it is to the definition of freedom to this understanding in order that we, that it may be attained and defended that this uh, essay is devoted i need not add that freedom is dangerous but it is hardly possible that we are all cowards uh i i don't know whether he's being ironic here uh, I think it's entirely possible that we are all cowards. <laughs> uh, maybe. Yeah, I mean, he has that, that great uh, little line there. Uh, where is it? The present ignorance and indifference is appalling. The little that is worthwhile in our civilization and culture is made possible by the few who are capable of creative thinking and independent action, grudgingly assisted by the rest. When the majority of men surrender their freedom, barbarism is near, but when the creative minority surrender it, the dark age has arrived. That's great. I think I marked that out to read, too. And he's just saying dark age, like, that's his personal preference, right? Like, other people may think that there's an era of great sophistication coming, <laughs> which only correct ideas can be expressed. I wonder if other people may think that, if he's saying that uh, for science, the canon of truth is convenience... 
then maybe it's very convenient to have a society where only correct ideas are allowed to be expressed. But how do you get to a place of knowing what is correct and yeah. what is incorrect? Yeah. Um, yeah, here's this question. The unenlightened man will assign arbitrary values to all things in order to protect and justify his own position. That's very... His morals are based on, his, on things he wishes were true or which someone else wishes were true. His philosophy pays no attention to relative facts or realities, and yet his life must deal with them. He is consequently involved in a constant round of pretenses and evasions. And that's like, I wish I could fucking put that on a flag and <laughs> <laughs> if, if anyone would have bothered to read it or anything like that. That's yeah, such an important thing. Who uh, gave me the quote for the flag said he couldn't put more than 15 characters on the flag. Because <laughs> people it, stop reading after that. Yeah, it's <laughs> like an uh, embroidery machine literally wouldn't go that fine. <laughs> But that uh, that is such a, like an important thing that I think. Uh, um, well, I mean, the problem is, yeah, people wouldn't read it, and if people did read it, they wouldn't actually uh, get anything out of it because they would wouldn't become self conscious enough to realize that they themselves were guilty of that. Because we are all are guilty of that at some point or another. But it's a it's a really important thing for us to actually because he's on he's on he's on point there I think. And this is contrasted against the intelligent individual will not base his conduct on an arbitrary or absolute conception of right and wrong. It may be argued that all motives and all actions are selfish since they intend to satisfy some requirement of ego. Perhaps this is true of self-sacrifice, abnegation, and the highest altruism. We engage in them in order to satisfy ourselves by attaining some object, however intangible it may be. Um, this is uh, Nietzsche's criticism of, of altruism, that uh, you, know, you give to other people only through selfish motives. And uh, you might say, what's wrong with that? Like, this is great as long as you know, the act of giving is accomplished. Uh, you feel good, they feel good. Um, Nietzsche is going to go a little bit further than this and say that you give to people to try and enslave them. That, you know, when you see someone begging on the street and you go like, you spend that on food, <laughs> um, that, that all acts of altruism have a tendency to enslave because they make the, the recipient of charity more reliant on the uh, giver of, of charity. I like uh, Parsons' uh, addition to that or expansion of that where he's uh, saying that you can expand the ego to include other people and maybe even the entire human race. Mm -hmm. And that actually, to me, uh, smooths over something of Nietzsche's point of view to make it feel a little bit more accurate in a, in a sense because it's a little more human. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a little more accurate to the way that humans work. Um, if you have somebody who thinks of themselves, and there's all kinds of us alive today who think of ourselves as Jesus fucking Christ, um, that's a common <laughs> mentality for people to take on. That's because they're expanding themselves to take everybody in as part of their ego. And, uh, of course, that's, you know, their ultimate ego is still being assuaged directly. And uh, here, as a consequence, well sort of related to these two different examples of two types of men, the intelligent individual and the unenlightened man, uh, one who is comported towards selfishness, even righteous, generous selfishness, and the other who is comported towards absolute moral absolutes. We have this thing that says it is convenient. Here's convenient, maximum convenience is our standard of truth, this uh, Crowley's science thing, and then also what he says earlier about how, you know, 
this phenomena explains lots of things. Mm -hmm. It's convenient that we grant others the right to their own opinions and lifestyles in order to maintain our own. And so this is two more of, of the arguments for truth. Uh, both the argument from hypocrisy, saying that, like, we don't want freedom for ourselves and mustard for everyone else. Uh, um, and also uh, the argument from a slippery slope saying that, like, you know, so who cares if Nazis are censored, uh, you know, may, uh, because they, their ideas are uh, reprehensible. Uh, I still can say whatever is on my mind. Um, but what if your ideas go out of fashion too? Um, these limit cases are not very helpful. Maybe I shouldn't go to Nazis because everyone's <laughs> going to say like, yeah, Nazis are bad. Censor all the Nazis. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So, but like, uh, so these radical limit cases, but there are intermediate cases of, uh, you know, people, uh, well, that's the problem. I mean, it's yeah. you, it, when somebody doesn't agree with you, you can call them a Nazi. Right? Yeah. So, right. I mean, that's, uh, then it's, it just goes to show that you can change the, uh, where that border is as soon as you, you know, you've pushed and found that you can get away with certain things, then you can keep pushing until you find where that, that borderline is. Um, and then before and of course you know we it. can say you know bringing uh bad ideologies out into the light of day they'll 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 wither in the sun whereas if we repress thing re repress people they'll feel censored and that bad feeling will tend to make their bad ideas fester and they'll find secret places to discuss uh, uh, bad ideas with other people who similarly feel rejected and, uh, and, uh, bad ideas will fester and mutate and, and underground movements of people with bad ideas will, uh, metastasize and then you will have the current political landscape. Yeah, that's the, I mean, that's, uh, there's something to be said for being against having conversations and instead having arguments. And, and I, I think, like, the problem is people always have to feel the need to simplify things and say, like, well, if you're arguing against this, then you must be arguing for that or vice versa. And it's like, why can we not have more nuanced thought? If you watch leftists debate rightists on, like, late night talk show or something, there's one specific I'm thinking of where like, somebody like Ben Shapiro talking to some smart left person. Um, uh, the leftist always gets trounced <laughs> and it's not because they're stupid. It's because they haven't prepared mm -hmm. because they think that their ideas are so correct on the surface mm -hmm. that, you know, they stand for a morally correct, uh, uh, position. Um, so they don't need to rigorously defend their ideas. And so... When um, when a person on the right who knows that they're the moral underdog or or whatever has a, a clearly constructed argument is prepared for the questions they're going to be asked responds to whatever they they uh, um, they they seem to win you know uh, and and it's because of this uh, this moral high ground that uh, that leftist thinks they have and it's too bad because there are good ideas that could be defended and nobody bothers doing it. Mm -hmm. So we've got two of our four reasons that freedom is important. Sorry, three of our four reasons that freedom is important. You've already, have you already summarized this Lieber Oz thing you have? Well, uh, I mean, we, uh, we, uh, I, I emphasize the three that were not included, but the rest are pretty much along the lines of the rights of man. Right. 
So, and uh, we talked a little bit about the ways in which they seemed interpretable, even though we want them to be uninterpretable. Uh, I mean, just to the point of what we were just discussing as well, uh, he does have a quote here. Freedom is a two-edged sword. Remember, liberty and responsibility. Mm -hmm. He who believes that the absolute rightness of his belief is an authority to suppress the rights and opinions of his fellows cannot be a liberal. It cannot exist where the emergency monger or the utopia salesman can obtain a suspension of rights, whether temporary or permanent. Liberty cannot be suppressed in order to defend liberalism. That's really nice. Yeah. And of course, the mind goes to situations that perhaps maybe you could argue for some kind of suspension of rights temporarily because of wartime or whatever, what have you. But it's like, no, this is a, this is really important stuff. Yeah. And uh, um, when he's giving some of his examples, which maybe we won't do the examples, but when he's giving some of his examples of like things that are happening in 46, and then in the preface, he gives more examples of, of things that are happening in 50. It's all under the um, pretense of safety. The watchword is safety. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if we do these things, then we'll be a little bit safer. And, and Yeah, you could just imagine with the uh, the uh, communist uh, people being uh, hunted down and accused of communism and whatnot and, uh, in the name of safety and that sort of thing. And it's like it doesn't really matter who's doing what. You're just hunting people down and it's just another witch hunt at some point or japanese internment camps is one example Mm -hmm. or uh, i looked up the man act which he mentions in the preface which is a really interesting case uh it's uh the idea is that pimps should not be able to kidnap women uh bring them across state lines and oblige them into prostitution in neighbor you know in in little towns remote from their homes uh, and so you might think, uh, why does Parsons hate this? Like, he's anti-slavery, right? Like, he should uh, not want women to be kidnapped. Um, but in practice, it uh, limits uh, women's ability to travel, uh, limits women's ability to travel, you know, especially with men. The, the, the target is prostitution. So the, the consequence of prostitution laws are that they often affect prostitutes more uh, they have a a worse impact on prostitutes than they do upon johns or pimps you know because the 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 act of prostitution is really obvious you'll only catch at most one john with one woman Mm. (laughs) you know where she may have had a dozen half dozen customers that uh evening um and the, the travel piece is really important because especially when premarital sex is uh is illegal if a if a woman wants to cross state lines with her boyfriend who's to say that she hasn't been kidnapped uh, mm-hmm. and that she isn't just and so yeah how you define that that's a very good point because it's yeah. the it, it goes to show that like a lot of these things i mean this happens in the media a lot but it can happen in laws and that sort of thing as well where it's like the way that you parse it sounds so scandalous like of course you'd be for that of course that's the right way to think of things but then when you look under the surface it's not quite as straightforward as that and in that that it can even be just used as a complete foil for what what's actually what the effects actually end up being so that's a very good very interesting uh point right there um what the hell were we talking about 
Uh, oh, uh, yes. Yeah, so we started doing the thing we said we weren't going to do, which is writing contemporary example. <laughs> uh, um, uh, also, like burlesque laws. Um, he says laws which uh, affect sexual relationships between consenting adults. You might think like sodomy laws or laws about premarital sex or um, laws about things, uh, burlesque specifically, laws that prevent... Um, uh, Things like sex clubs and stuff from opening, uh, laws that prevent co- contraception. It all it all starts to drift towards sex for him because of what his solution is going to be. Yeah. So here's some ideas about uh, the responsibilities of um, of people who accept liberalism. These rights must be counterbalanced by certain responsibilities. The liberal accepting them must guarantee these rights to all others at other, all other times, regardless of personal feelings or interests. He must work to establish and protect them, live in a manner commensurate with them, and be prepared to defend them with his life. So this is even uh, bigger. It's getting more extreme, uh, but not really changing. The idea of defending liberty is still the main thing. But then here's a fun one. He must refuse allegiance to any state or organization which denies these rights, and he should age encourage all who, without qualification or equivocation, endorse them. So um, he's going to say that, you know, you you maybe want to turn in your citizenship or uh, uh, not uh, work for the military in his case or <laughs> something. Uh, that um, uh, you want to uh, avoid associating with people who are anti-liberty so that you're not, uh, by your actions, tacitly supporting... uh, Yeah, which again is a nice idea, but in practice, if somebody's repressing your liberty, then, you know, that's the problem. You know, you don't really... It's difficult to have a choice in the matter when you're actually in that kind of situation, I am sure. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's scary to quit your job. Uh, and it's even scary to quit your job when you think there are no other employers who would be better to work for. So, but not only that, but I mean, like, if you have, if suddenly you're in a situation where there's a government that uh, is suddenly taking things into more of a fascistic kind of scenario or something along those lines, and they have the power and you... Uh, have to live in that environment it is easy enough to speculate on the idea of like well you know what i will stand up for my uh, what i believe in and i will go to jail if that's necessary and and yada 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 um but i'm i mean it's easy to sit there and talk about that when we're sitting comfortably in a in a so-called free country or whatnot you know well, you know freud escaped and jung joined the nazi party and uh um uh People seem to continue to read both these guys. <laughs> it doesn't affect neither of their careers. Uh, but maybe Parsons would think that you have the duty to try and escape before things go completely wrong. Uh, the question of when to escape is a good question. Uh, and uh, and uh, how quickly things will get worse and where to draw the line. And stuff. It also, yeah, that, that again brings us back around to the idea that this kind of requires a uh, specific doctrine, a dogma, so to speak, and a credo, a creed, um, because you need something to define these things by. It must also be understood that we cannot force man's rights upon him. Man has a right to be a slave if he so desires. If he does not assert and defend his rights, he deserves slavery. 
the person who is tyrannized by his family, his peers, by public opinion, by slave morality, providing he is free to leave their influence or to challenge it, is worthy of his condition. His protestations are those of the hypocrite. Uh, so uh, the, 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 I've underlined here providing he is free to leave their influence. Mm -hmm. um, so this thing we've been talking about here about, you know, when to leave or how, you know, how to leave or... Or, or whether escape is, is prudent, you know, if I quit this job where the newspaper is really bad in terms of censoring certain ideas, is there another newspaper I could go to work for that wouldn't be as bad? And, and I think this is important because in Thelema, we talk a lot about this master-slave dichotomy and uh, how slaves shall serve. You know, this is another uh, quote from the Book of the Law, the slave shall serve. Um, and, and that we're not supposed to worry about people who willingly abdicate their freedom because they're free to do that. Uh, Parsons here clarifies, providing he is free to leave their influence. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about um, people you know, living in a totalitarian state, for example, or uh, something like uh, American slavery, where, you know, escape is punishable by all sorts of horrors. The idea is a kind of slavery uh, that is enforced upon you by your own lack of courage, your lack of desire for self-determination, um, and you know, your comfort for, with the for, uh, the safety of slavery. Yeah, and you think a slavery that can be sort of pushed on you by others, but uh, through you know maybe propaganda or social conditions or uh, or you know anxieties about ostracism. Uh, but there, ha but as long as there's a way out through courage, then you're seen as consenting to your own slavery whereas if there's no way out through courage uh, um, whereas if things if things are very very bad indeed uh, and you need a conspiracy of underground railroaders or something to get you out then this is not going to be seen as a uh, as a morally justifiable circumstance you don't want to uh now, my, my speculation here is uh, earlier it was said uh, we we need to defend other people's freedoms as well mm -hmm. in, in order to maintain our own freedoms. Um, so I could conceive of a situation if we were looking at it this way. Um, the people who would tend to accept this kind of slavery that we're talking about um, would probably be in large numbers because it tends to be a larger minority or a larger majority of people who uh, tend to become kind of indifferent and passive and go along with things, go with the flow. Uh, so that being said, these people who, if that's the case, there tends to be a, like a large number of people going along with this kind of slavery that we're talking about, then eventually I would assume that this would be cause a problem for the freedom of the other people because there's a tendency for people to not mind their own business and to spread their way of life into other people's backyards and whatnot. So I could see there being a problem with this as a general approach to things. And my, I mean, this is just a speculation, but uh, uh, if I was to have to take that speculation and say, okay, well then what's, uh, what do we do then? Maybe it's a matter of education 
and making sure I've always feel like I've always gone back to like the idea that, well, if we want to, if we want a society that we're really happy with that structured in the way that we want, we need to educate and empower people through education. And that should be one of the foremost important things for a state. Now, this is kind of going a little bit far afield from what we're talking about here, but. Well, uh, there is something about how um, the work of the free individual is heroic, you know, i.e. dangerous, i.e., mm-hmm. you know, but it can be comp- accomplished through example and education. You set mm-hmm. a good example and you... Uh, and you you work hard to communicate principles of liberty and see if people take them up. Uh, so you're not you're not far off. I think two more quotations from this section and then we're done. Uh, oh, uh, this is fun. It is inconceivable that men who fought and died in a war against totalitarianism did not know what they fought for. It seems like a fantastic joke that the institutions they believed in and defended have turned like a nightmare into homegrown tyrannies. A generation went down in blood and agony to make the world safe, but the evil that makes the world unsafe still goes undefeated, plotting new sacrifices of misery and of blood. The guilt lies not entirely with warmongers, plutarchs, and demagogues, If a people permit exploitation and regimentation in any name, they deserve their slavery. A tyrant does not make his tyranny. It is made possible by his people and not otherwise. (laughs) It turned on my sexiest voice to read that. (laughs) There's that Uh, vocal fry. Yeah, there we are. So there is really an aspect of like, uh, you've got to be ready to give your life for freedom ultimately, or sacrifice your comforts and your own perceived freedoms if it's in the face of these tyrannies. We haven't read too, too many of the quotes in here that, I should say, we haven't read too many many of the passages in here because they're not quotes until we read them. (laughs) That's it. Uh, We haven't read too, too many of passages in here that, uh, that talk about partisanship and how unhealthy radical partisanship is. But there really is this thing of um, relating individual identity to group identity and deferring to a a social system uh, that like, oh, if my ideas are echoed by group ideas, or if I, you know, like say this thing, then that's, that's outlier, then my group might ostracize me. You don't even have to be willing to defend with firearms. He's going to say later on that you just have to be willing to actually be an individual in the face of um, this kind of political crisis. You know, people people can get blackballed by the, the House on american Activities Commission, but they're not going to get executed. Uh, you know, the, the courage to speak your mind shows... They could an get example of 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 liberty to. They could people. get blown up in a freak accident. Apparently, that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> was secretly true. the government trying to. Sorry, that's a. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That <laughs> one of the conspiracy possible. theories tied around Jack Parsons. I think it's probably true. I, <laughs> I, I uh, you know, I wouldn't know either way to be honest with you. So I, you know, I'm not going to like take a side on it or anything like that. But I couldn't. I could totally see that being true. <laughs> so, if you work your whole life with explosives and you know them very well. You're unlikely to want to blow yourself up. But even if you work your whole life 
with explosives. I know them fairly well. You probably shouldn't be doing rocket research in the kitchen of a single <laughs> one bedroom apartment. Like you should be working in a laboratory with certain safety uh hey, you know, in place. So. Accidents happen most often close to home, right? Yeah, so that's right. So, that's where you get more comfortable and you start letting your guard down. So uh I think he's I think what he's talking here is specifically the circumstance in, in America that continues to be the truth of things even in liberal nations drifting more and more towards what seems like radical political partisanship, uh, but what is uh, actually a sort of business rule, the rule of uh, a a sort of behind-the-scenes rule by commerce rule or something, that individuals who allow themselves to stop being individuals and, and, and play these sort of partisan partisan games, these left-right uh, games. Um, for example, you know, if, if, if you really believe in one politician, but they're like a third-party candidate and have no chance of holding office, so you throw yourself behind another politician who you don't support just in mm-hmm. order to get the existing person out of office or something. <laughs> strategic uh, voting, is yeah, that what it's called? Yeah, strategic voting thing. I, Crowley says, I've never in my life disgraced myself by voting. And this is the reason because, <laughs> uh, because by identifying your own values with the values of some other person, you, you necessarily lose some individuality. I mean, people can vote, but by, by strategic voting in a partisan, in a partisan way, by like, you know, when it really comes down to the wire, no matter how radical your own ideas are, you throw yourself behind someone for the sake of strategy, then, uh, you might as well, uh, not count you know what you want is uh maybe protest movements or uh but even that's too social for what jack is recommending here he wants to say something about uh not integrating with a party or a church or uh something but but learning to integrate with the self is going to be the solution which incidentally comes up in chapter three he's uh, talking a little bit about uh um, what essentially seems like tiptoeing around mysticism and magic, so like the uh, inward process of integration and the outward process of integration. The principle we have developed herein is simple. The liberty of the individual is the foundation of civilization. No true civilization is possible without liberty, and no state, national or international, is stable in its absence. The proper relation between individual liberty on one hand and social responsibility on the other hand is the balance which will assure a stable society. The only other road to social equilibrium demands the total annihilation of individuality. There is no further evasion of nature's immemorial ultimatum. Change or perish, but the choice of change is ours. So this is another uh, of the arguments for freedom. Uh, that in order to have any kind of culture or stability at all, uh, liberty creates culture, and any state worth having is a is a, f- a free state with a free culture. Um, and uh, yeah, he gives himself an out again with no true civilization. <laughs> that's possible. right. Uh, um, and and so without freedom, uh, without without real uh, freedom as a guiding principle, states become sort of fractious. And uh, and culture becomes kind of unclear. I mean, he's saying that there's only been liberalism for 200 years, and so like what accounts for Shakespeare <laughs> and and various other uh, cultural vanguards, the ballet, the opera, 
you know, these are the, these are real cultural achievements uh, that happened um, under uh, unfree states, uh, at least illiberal states, uh, monarchical states, if you want. Uh, but uh, but he's he's going to say r- r- real real states, real culture, real civilization is comported toward freedom or um, comported toward absolute abdication of liberty. And maybe this is what he thinks happens with the ballet and the opera and mm-hmm. so forth, is that because uh, uh, people are owned in mind by the church and embodied by the state, uh, they're all able to work together as a, as a single unit to create these massive cultural landmarks. Uh, well, I mean, this speaks to, uh, again, we see the manifestation of some of these things, like with, uh, just using, like, for instance, the the Roman Empire, the way that that mm-hmm. came about. We had uh, um, Julius Caesar taking taking control in a civil war coup, and uh, we have his murderers in the Senate um, who... Uh, uh, really believed that they were doing the will of the people. And uh, because before that, Rome was a republic, and it was uh, a lot more control by the people and that sort of thing. And uh, so they perceived Julius Caesar taking this uh, dictatorial role, which he ended up having dictatorial powers for life. So they saw it as being a king taking control. So they ended up killing him, thinking that they were doing the will of the people. Turns out they were just really uh, these elitist kind of aristocrats who uh, didn't really know the voice of the people at all. Uh, And the voice of the people ended up embracing, in the long run, Emperor Augustus and his plans for uh, control of things. And uh, it seems like it, I mean, just using this as an example, it seems like that's a common thing to happen as well, that uh, maybe it's a a pattern that comes up a lot where you have a state operating on the principles of freedom, even if not necessarily working in an ideal way or maybe even in a state of chaos as the Roman Republic basically was for that hundred years leading up to that point. But then you have... Uh, somebody coming in and taking charge and this sort of dictatorial kind of scenario, this kingship or monarchy or however however we want to portray that. Uh, And then a lot of the people end up liking that and it makes them a lot happier. So there's a certain level of that coming along, which goes back to what I was saying about the, uh, uh, you know, if you allow people to be slaves if they want to, well, I mean, that could lead down other roads as well that you may not you know, recognize at the outset. I was uh, just watching a little video on uh, some African, um, The it was described as the last African king, I think, or the last African emperor. It's like in Central Africa, there was this uh, um, guy who took power, I forget his name, uh, it was like a French name, and then I think an African last name, if I'm not mistaken. But that's not helpful. So. <laughs> but either way, he was uh, he took power, I think, in like uh, in the 70s, uh, and uh, he made himself emperor. He idolized Napoleon. He made him. He had himself uh, this really expensive uh, ordination uh, in emperor regalia to match, like it was specifically modeled after Napoleon's, and and it was uh, this big ridiculous ordeal. And he was. Uh, he was accused of cannibalism of his enemies, and he was accused of like uh, all these uh, murders and things. And and he apparently like there was some children, like 150 children, protested against the expensive um, uniforms that they had to uh, 
buy and where and then he had them all arrested and then he ended up uh, getting really angry and him and his men were beating them to death and all this sort of just brutal horrible horrible person but then apparently later on like in, in nowadays people look back on his reign with fondness again that golden age kind of mentality of like well things were so much better back then now it's like in a state of you know uh, it's it's not it's kind of chaotic and whatnot so um there again it's just this this you know idea of what things are like uh under the rule of uh some kind of an emperor or something like that it really does strangely appeal to a lot of people which is disturbing, but it's a, a fact. We're not, like, we we sitting here as Thelemites, we really do take personal liberty as an important fundamental right and something that we're, we think is really important. That's not across the board for all people, you know? No, which is why I think Thelema becomes aristocratic very, very quickly as soon mm-hmm. as you start, start thinking about it. Um, and Parsons' idea here of a supra-legal guiding principle like uh, a a super-liberal legal document like the... I think he's thinking of the Bill of Rights or something like that. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms or the Constitution of the United States or something like this that is a guiding guiding document for uh, the relationship at the federal level, at the uh, state level, at the municipal level, and including at the individual level. And then laws exist beneath that and adjacent to that, but that laws never circumvent this. Uh, and so you, you have this powerful statement of, of fundamental human right as the center of your society. But then, you know, most people don't choose to exploit the freedom that they have. Most people live kind of like in the world as it exists for them in a natural aristocracy sort of bubbles up Mm -hmm. of people who are willing to not only claim their rights but sort of push culture on behalf of everyone else um like inventing opera and ballet and (laughs) and, (laughs) um and there might be other sorts of working class culture um uh, of the kind that we prefer now uh but uh the point is that at the the head of the state you don't have a monarch ruling by decree. You have a, a set of principles that guide the minds of the aristocracy and allow them uh, to kind of rule the the serfdom in a healthier. Well, they don't allow them not to see the serfdom as a serfdom, but as <laughs> as individuals with ends who uh, have the power to attain their own flourishing to the degree that they have it. I think he does mention that, like, the uh, confusion of uh, the rights of an individual versus the rights of a state. Yeah. Which I think you alluded to earlier. Um, Well, states' rights, I don't mean... States' rights are the rights guaranteed by the state, whereas... Yeah, and the role of the state, I should say. So the role of the state, uh, which is to do its part to maintain the freedoms of the individual. Right. Uh, And uh, so, look... Holy smokes. Uh, what is that? How long is our we're trial at, now? Uh, we're at two hours. We're at two hours. Um, we can do a part two on this um, because I think the, the, that what's left is actually the, the most the interesting, the kind of weirdest part of, of where he's going. But do we want our very first two-part episode to be Parsons and not Crowley? 
<laughs> and uh, so I'm going to suggest we call it there and not promise listeners <laughs> that a part two is forthcoming. <laughs> Uh, but talk about off mic whether or not it's something we want to do. Yeah, I was I was anticipating that because as much as this is a short essay and easy, again, it's another one of those things that it's easy to kind of downplay how much we can get out of it. There's a lot that can be easily unpacked from it. So I was kind of anticipating the possibility that we could have even taken it chapter by chapter practically, really, if we wanted to. But uh, yeah, let's say you know what this is uh, great. We've uh, we've actually touched on the whole piece, so we have covered quite a bit. If we do uh, find our opportunity to uh, approach it once again and, and flesh out the rest of it and do a second part, that'll be wonderful. But yeah, it might be nice to to actually do some uh, Crowley again next time around, and we'll we'll uh, we'll basically see how things manifest. Uh, but yeah, read the rest of the paper if you're so inclined. Um, how he gets from the fight against tyranny to through sex morality to the feminist movements are the solution is uh, difficult and worthy of worthy of study. And uh, if you're interested in this paper, and uh, it's it's all the fun stuff is to come. So <laughs> so take take it on your own time if you're inclined to do so. Definitely. I think uh, if you want to buy a copy of Jack Parsons' essays, uh, good luck. It's not, uh, as far as I know, it's not in print, and uh, they're extremely expensive from what I've seen online. So uh, you can get them online for free. That's pretty much what we've done here. We've just been going by an essay form, uh, a PDF that's uh, floating around on the internet. Um, but hopefully, uh, you know, in the future we'll be able to find a little bit of a better format for some of Jack Parsons' writings. Thanks, Darren. That was fun. Thank you. Love is the law, love under will. Love is the law, love under will. Thanks for listening. Watch for our follow-up to this episode where we focus on the two closing chapters of Parsons' essay. Look for Toronto Thalima on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube and watch for events in the city. And join us again in the darkly splendid abodes. <laughs>